Hello, and welcome to the third edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, Christopher R. Mim, the writer and director of the films of the Mimiverse, uh, which you should know by this point if you're listening to my podcast, since this podcast is all about the Mimiverse. What's going on? What might be going on? What might not be going on? Fun stuff like that. So I'll jump right in. And I'll let you know that we have some cool stuff in this month's episode, including, and I'm very excited about this, a return of the Canucops Adventures, written by Stephen Sullivan. If you listen to the first episode, I read a story that was written by Stephen Sullivan called The Haunted Canoe. That was a Canucops adventure. Well, this month, we got another one. It's called The Mummy's Ring, and that'll be coming up later. And in fact, uh, here's the thing. If you guys like the, the Canoe Cops adventures that Mr. Sullivan has written and that I have and will be reading to you, he has hinted that perhaps with a little, a little ego stroke from the fine listeners out there, you guys, he might be willing to make this a monthly thing. So if you like this, please find him on Facebook. His name is Stephen Sullivan, Steve Sullivan. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll post his website on the description of this particular episode. Find him, let him know that you like it, and tell him you want more. Because the idea, uh, and he's just, he threw this out there, and I'm going to put it out there because I would be excited for this, and I think you guys would too. He mentioned the possibility, because the canoe cops are awesome, and people love the canoe cops, and I think people want more canoe cop stuff. And at this point, this is the only way we're going to get the canoe cops to continue. Because cinematically, I I don't know. I don't know if, if that's going to happen. I do have some ideas. I think it'd be cool to do some Canoe Cop shorts. I don't know if a feature is necessarily something that would work with the Canoe Cops. And I've said this many, many, many times before. Because I worry that the Canoe Cops are only awesome because you've only seen them in such small chunks. And I think if you were to stretch that out to a 70, 80 minute movie, it would lose its luster and the canoe cops would be ruined, ruined. And I don't want to ruin them. So I think that perhaps a, a series of cinematic shorts, maybe a web series would be great. The other way is Steve Sullivan, who is a great guy. I love that guy has written a couple of these canoe cops adventures. And uh, he, he mentioned that he might be willing to write more and then perhaps once he has enough, collect them into a printed volume, which personally I think would be awesome. I would love it. Anyway, so that's coming up later. Let's get into what's going on in the Mimiverse right now. I, I generally start these things by saying I'll be brief, but um, I probably won't because I rarely ever am. But that's me. Maybe you're used to it by now. You know, it's funny. <laughs> And this is me already going off on a tangent. When I first started doing this and I started doing radio interviews and all these, you know, interviews and whatnot, I, 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 I had a tendency to veer off the beaten path and talk about stuff that, that these roundabout answers, it'd be a straightforward question and I'd give them 20 minutes of how, you know, something that almost was barely tangentially related, and then finally get back to it, and the answer would be like, oh, yeah, yes. So basically, over the years, I've had to learn to try to keep my answers focused, keep my thoughts focused, but for me, um, not so much. It's, uh, I, my, my mind is, is constantly all over the place. 
Uh, you can ask anybody who knows me or anyone who's ever listened to me give a off-the-cuff interview or has ever listened to the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast. We're kind of known for going off the rails, off-roading the bus, as co-host Ruby likes to say. So I ended up sidetracking and uh, had nothing to do with anything other than me saying that I will try to be brief uh, on the what's going on in the Mimiverse, and I probably won't. And then I went off on a tangent to discuss how I have a tendency to go off on tangents. So it's kind of kind of inception-y, kind of meta, if you think about it. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, uh, it is December 30th, 2014. In two days, it will be 2015, Year of Danny Johnson Saves the World, the latest Mimiverse film, which, as of right now, is about two-thirds edited and coming together beautifully. It's the story of a young boy named Danny Johnson, and he ends up being put into a situation because he lives near Phantom Lake. And of course, everything crazy happens around Phantom Lake and the Mimiverse and the Wasawa Caves, where, of course, Danny Johnson, the character of Danny Johnson, was originally introduced in Terror from Beneath the Earth as a young six-year-old boy who had been captured by the Bat Monster. Same actor has played him every every time he's appeared on screen. He also appeared on screen in The Giant Spider at the very beginning, playing, you know, pretending to be Commander Lambent, space explorer, in the woods at the beginning of The Giant Spider. Now, he has his own cool adventure movie, starring mostly children, 12 and under. Principal photography is done. That's the big news. The script has been shot. The script, as it was originally written, is all in the can which, of course, is a phrase that means nothing now since everything is done digitally and stored on SD cards and P2 cards and hard drives. There's no cans and film canisters, but it's still a term used. All the footage required to complete Danny Johnson Saves the World is sitting on multiple hard drives on my editing suite computer. So principal photography is complete. However, in a first... <laughs> For one of my films, early on in my films, I think that I had a tendency to pace things a little slow. And there have been some reviews that have knocked me on the pacing issues. Granted, those old films which I emulate tended to be slower paced. They weren't throw something at your face every five seconds the way movies are nowadays. That's the formula for movies now. Back then, it was more deliberate, and you could take your time, and maybe you didn't see the monster until the last, you know, 20 minutes. But that last 20 minutes was awesome. So, that being said, I, I did get, I have been knocked in reviews and, and interviews for some of my early work being very slow-paced. In particular, I think Terror from Beneath the Earth is the one film that gets knocked the most for its slow pace. But I also think, and I've heard this from numerous people, that it tends to be one of the most authentic of all my films because of the pacing, because of the layout of that film. So you can't necessarily win <laughs> because I'm making these old style films, but audiences nowadays are used to a certain level of ADHD in their you know, movie going. So you kind of have to fight with that. As Danny Johnson saves the world, 
it's coming together and I'm editing it together, I realized that I wrote it partially because it's kids and I didn't want to bog them down with gigantic paragraphs of exposition, which I sometimes do to adult actors just because I mean that way. Because of the way I wrote it and because it is what it is. The movie is extremely fast-paced. And I mean really, really, really fast-paced. Normally, I worry that the pacing of a particular film... You know, there's, there's this thing in, in filmmaking, in script writing, which is roughly that one page of a script should equal about one minute of a finished film. Okay. That's generally how you know you've, you've paced something correctly. If you can follow that formula, you did it right. Some of my early work, I did not do that right. <laughs> the scripts were shorter and yet were 20 minutes longer when completed. The giant spider is perfect. The late night double feature is perfect, pacing-wise. Of course, this doesn't speak exactly to the quality of a particular film or its entertainment value or anything like that. It just means that you, know, you, you paced it correctly in your editing. At least that's the way I take it. Maybe... Maybe I'm just making that up. But from what I can tell, as long as I seem to stick to that, the pacing is correct and it feels, quote unquote, quote, like a real movie, which, you know, I get that. Sometimes people, they see my films, they expect one thing because it's an independent film and this isn't to knock independent films, but as, as independent filmmakers are learning how to make movies, they tend not to pace them correctly. You know, conversations don't necessarily feel natural, which is, I think, one of the hardest things to do when you're editing and filming and anything, because these people are reciting lines from memory. It's difficult to make lines sound natural because you're saying something as a character that someone else wrote. So there's independent filmmakers tend to pace their films a little slower. There's, there's pauses, there's unnatural sounding and feeling dialogue. I feel like the moment that I feel like I started getting kind of good at editing was when I sort of figured out how to pace a conversation correctly. Once that clicked, I realized that the pacing of my films became much more natural, more like a real movie. And I think that sometimes when people say that to me, and I've heard that many times, oh my God, it's like a real movie. I don't take offense. I know what they mean. Because I've seen some independent films where you're like, oh yeah, you can tell this is a very low budget independent film that tried really hard, but it's made by people who are learning. And I'm not saying that I am a master of my craft. Far from it. I am always learning. I will continue to learn. But I feel like after making now almost 10 films, you could say even 11 if you include the late night double features too, I think that I've, I've gotten okay at, at what I'm doing. And I think I've learned some of these things. Anyway, so the pacing of Danny Johnson Saves the World as it's coming together is for the first time of any script I've ever done. I'm always worried when I make a script, when I write a script and I film it, that it's going to be, you know, that I'm going to be off the pace by, you know, say 10 minutes where it's a 60 minute, 65 page script, but it ends up being 75, 80 minutes. And then it makes me wonder, okay, is the pacing off? Is there something I should trim up? Well, this film, Danny Johnson, uh, is the opposite. <laughs> I am currently about 10 minutes off the pace the other direction, which is to say I am on, I'm editing the script, which right now is 79 pages long. And I have the opening credits up through about 40 pages of that script, right? 45, with some later scenes also completed. And up through, I think, page uh, 45, I only have 35 minutes of footage done. 
like edited. So the film itself is moving really quickly. And I can't think necessarily that's a bad thing. Right now, I literally have the first like 40 pages done, one to 40. So you can watch what ends up being the first 30 some minutes of the film in order, edited together, complete. And everyone who's watched it always looks at me and goes, wow, that's really short. I'm like, yeah. And I always ask, how long do you think you, you, you sat here? And they're like, oh, this is only like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It's so short. I'm like, no, you've been here for about 34 minutes. So it's a very quick paced film, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing because it makes it fun. I mean, it really, really moves. And I think because at its core, this film is a children's film. All my films can be enjoyed by kids, but this one definitely has things in it and it's scripted as such to be entertaining for kids. It's a kid's movie. It really is. It's for the kid and all of us. It's also a Christmas movie. Well, a stealth Christmas movie. Uh, I made a decision at some point that, uh, you know, I've, I've had over the years people say I should make a Christmas movie or a Christmas, Christmas horror movie or whatever. And I never really got the idea that I really wanted to do it. And then I realized that the way that this script is framed, the action of the film, they're kids in the 50s and they're fighting an evil robot, all that good stuff, uh, takes place in the 50s. Well, throughout the story is interwoven grown-up grandfather age Danny Johnson telling this story of something he did as a kid, this exciting adventure he had, to his grandkids. And I thought that I could make this a stealth Christmas movie in much the same way Die Hard is, which is my running joke, because Die Hard is not is not a classic Christmas film per se, but it takes place at Christmas. So I decided to do that. And so the wraparound, the, the interstitials of the grandfather telling the story and then you know, cutting back and forth, much like The Princess Bride, those take place at Christmas. And that's, that's as Christmassy as it gets. And, you know, there's, there's a part of me that thinks then maybe some folks will pull this out every year and watch it at Christmas. Maybe it's just a pure cynical business decision, perhaps. Nah, I actually just thought it'd be cool. So that's the big news. That's the big news right now coming out of the Mimiverse is that principal photography of Danny Johnson is done. Uh, it is on pace to be completed and ready in time for the world premiere, which I am going to be moving back to May in the middle of the week. Last year we did it on a Saturday and it costs a lot of money and I don't know if it necessarily helped or hurt us in any way. It seems to me, and, and it was funny that the owner of the, the Heights Theater, where we always do the premiere, the owner said, when I told him I wanted to do it on a Saturday, he asked me specifically, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I said, well, shouldn't that help business? Shouldn't that get more people to, to come out to the movies? And he said, no. The truth of the matter is, is Saturday is a night for teenagers, for people who have no nothing else to do because they can't go to bars, because they can't go do other stuff. Teenagers go out to the movies on Saturdays. Adults don't. They have other stuff going on. Maybe they have kids and they want to stay home and hang out with their kids, or they want to go see friends, or they want to go drinking with their buddies. They don't want to go to a movie. And oddly enough, I kind of thought, you know, it doesn't matter. I wanted to do it on a Saturday specifically to give more of an opportunity for out-of-town fans to come and see 
a premiere because coming to the premieres is always way cooler than just going to a random screening. It really is. It's an experience compared to just really just going to a movie. And we do it up, you know, we get dressed up, we we have cupcakes and, and meet and greets with the behind the scenes people and the actors and all that stuff. I mean, it's it's a really good time. And I've always, always encouraged people to come to premieres if they get a chance. And I've been doing that for years. And there were a lot of out-of-town fans who wanted to come to a premiere. And many of them said, if you did it on a Saturday, I could come. Because then I won't have to necessarily, like, take off several days of work and all that stuff. Because we always do them on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, you know, during the week. So last year I said, you know, this year we're going to do it. We're going to do it on a Saturday to help these folks to have more of an opportunity to come in. But it did, in fact, hurt sales. We still sold out. However, not in advance. We sold out the night of, which for three films before that, we had sold out in advance. It was a, it was interesting that we didn't sell out until the night of. And I think that can be attributed a lot to it being a Saturday. So this year we're moving back to Wednesday or Tuesday or whatever day works for the theater. Probably that week before uh, Memorial Day, as we have been doing in the past, if it works out to be when we normally do it, the Wednesday before Memorial Day, that will be May 20th, 2015. That would be when the world premiere of Danny Johnson Saves the World takes place. I can probably generally tell you that that's a good bet. You can you can put that on your calendar. That's 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 more or less going to be the premiere date. If it's not that date, it'll be the either the day before or the day after. But it'll be that week, most likely that Wednesday, May 20th, 2015. I'm not going to put advanced ticket sales. I'm not going to open that up. I won't do that before I complete the film. <laughs> Just because the last thing I want to do is sell tickets to an event and not actually have a movie to show. So until the movie is complete and edited, that's when I'll put uh, advanced tickets on. And of course, you can still contribute to the film. And you may ask, well, if the movie's done, why do I need to contribute? Well, the thing is, is it's not done done. Uh, there still are DVDs to be bought, which I need to buy DVDs so you guys can get DVDs. There are still things to pay for it, like the premiere. I am thinking that we may potentially do a, a night before the thing, part two. And the night before the thing was the pre-party the night before last year's premiere. And I think we may do that again. It may be a little scaled back and just be a dinner simply because it would most likely be a Tuesday night. So it's not necessarily something that's as easily accessible as last year, which was a Friday night. But I, I think we're going to do something. But stuff like that needs to be paid for. With that said, don't you want to see your name up on the, the big screen? You still have the opportunity to do this. If you would like to see your name in the credits or your loved one's name or your business or your dog or whatever you want, if you want to see your name in the credits, this is your chance. It's 25 bucks a credit per name and you get a copy of the DVD or a, a ticket to the premiere. But, and here's the beautiful thing, is that you can pre-order tickets and DVDs if you order a contributor credit. So you can put your name up in the in credits and with that $25, you get your name in the credits, you'll get a cool certificate saying you did this, and you'll get either a DVD or a ticket. But then if you want both, it's it's 10 bucks more and you get a DVD or, or a ticket or two tickets. I mean, you can, you can, you can 
order as much as you'd like. Imagine how awesome it would be if you've never experienced seeing your name up on a big screen. This is your chance. Going forward, as I continue to work on Daniel Johnson Saves the World, the contributing credits will still be open until the film is finalized. Once it's been finalized, it'll be closed and you won't be able to, to get your credit. And that's just the way it goes. I would encourage you, if you've ever thought about doing this, you might want to do it within the next, say, 30 to 45 days. Because without needing to really shoot anything else, now I can just focus solely on editing. It's going to go quickly. Although, and this goes back to the pacing thing I was talking about, being ahead of the pace. Because I am ahead of the pace and I don't want to have a finished film that's, say, less than, say, 65 minutes. Because I want it to be a feature, and to me, it has to be at least 65 minutes. I uh, wrote some additional stuff that I may throw into the film. I'm going to film it, and I'll see how it turns out. It's actually really cool. <laughs> and I was really excited once I wrote it. Uh, it's it's very, it's fun, and it'll it'll add a nice extra element to the film. I mean, it's just more goofiness and more fun that I want to add to this movie. And, you know, the actors are in, and, and the puppeteers are ready to go, and... And uh, it's just a matter of shooting it. But that's the least of, uh, it's, I'm not particularly worried about it right now, simply because I'm focused on editing. I'm going to try and get that filmed at some point here soon, and then we'll throw it in. But if it doesn't get done, the film, as I originally wrote it, will be completed at some point. Last thing I want to say is for anyone who is really excited to see the stop motion animation in the late night double feature, the last the film that came out last year. It was done by Norman Yeend of Australia. He's a great guy. He did all the stop motion, and it's fantastic. He's doing more for this movie. I specifically wrote it in. I asked him if he'd be cool to do it because it's just so cool and so old school. And he was very excited to do it. So uh, he's working on that again. So there will be also more stop motion. Alrighty then. So that's, that's my spiel for this month. I think we will move here into some of the fun stuff. First, we have another classic movie recommendation from Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio. If you've listened to the last couple of shows, you know that he's he's done this, and they're really well-produced and really entertaining. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to him. When we come back, I'll read you the new uh, Canoe Cop Paddle Girl Adventure by Stephen Sullivan. Talk to you in a bit. When I'm not checking out the latest updates at SaintEuphoria.com or watching one of the movies directed by Christopher R. Mim, I'm producing my own show, Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classics and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm Derek M. Cook, and I love classic monster movies, and that's why I love the movies of Christopher R. Mim. He draws his inspiration from a lot of these classic monster movies, these classic horror and sci-fi films from the 50s, and I can't help but notice possible inspirations from some of these classic movies from our monster movie past. For example, in 2012, Christopher Armin released the movie House of Ghosts. Now, this is clearly inspired by William Castle, as evidenced by Christopher Armin introducing the movie himself. He actually comes on screen and warns the audience, gives them a heads up, playing the William Castle role, and it's brilliant. There's a lot of William Castleisms in House of Ghosts. 
But I picked up on more than that, and I think it's safe to say that Mim and company don't pull their inspiration from just one filmmaker or one movie, but they've watched a lot of these movies as well. Maybe they even watched The Screaming Skull. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. Therefore, its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing the Screaming Skull. Be sure to bring someone with you who can identify you when you see the Screaming Skull. Only this lost soul, half man, half ghost, knows the secret of the living dead's curse. The torturous agony that saturates these walls and makes the shutters creak with almost human pain. Terrorizing those who dare to love with the maddening, jealous shriek of the screaming skull. diabolic demon dares touch the screaming skull what ghoulish thoughts control this poor man's demented mind what does he know what secret horrifying and blood curdling is he hiding nothing is more terrifying than the spine chilling breath of a vampire woman ghostly ghastly as unreal as a will-o'-the-wisp as real as the skull Now, I have to admit, this is pretty timely because I'm covering The Screaming Skull with author Stephen D. Sullivan over on Monster Kid Radio at the end of December. However, while I was watching The Screaming School, there's an image in this film that reminds me of an image from House of Ghosts. Now, House of Ghosts, the setup is that there's a seance. The participants are all kind of trapped in the house because there's some inclement weather outside. And some things kind of go a little screwy. Things go a little wonky. It wouldn't be a monster movie if things went well for the people in the film people start seeing things now i don't feel like i'm spoiling too much because if you go and watch the trailer of the movie well you're gonna see the image that i'm referring to people start seeing things sometimes it's ghosts sometimes it's something spookier sometimes it's a little wackier but they're seeing things and at one point somebody sees well a skeleton and when i watched the screaming skull recently for monster kid radio and I saw the image of this full-on skeletal body walking around in one quick shot, it immediately made me think of House of Ghosts. Now, The Screaming School might have some thematic elements that are similar to House of Ghosts, or is it the other way around? Either way, things aren't what they seem in The Screaming School. This is a movie from 1958, directed by first-time feature film director Alex Nichol. It's a very small cast, it's very intimate, which is another thing that makes this movie similar to some movies that Mim has directed. Or again, is it the other way around? Either way, it's a very small cast. It takes place in a limited amount of locations, pretty much a house and the grounds around the house, much like House of Ghosts, which primarily takes place, well, in a house, as evidenced by the title of the film. I think there's a couple of shots from outside the house, but for the most part, everything takes place in this one central location, 
like in The Screaming Skull. Now, in The Screaming Skull, our lead is played by Peggy Weber. She plays a woman by the name of Jenny who's got some things going on. She's being manipulated, and well... Some of the characters in House of Ghosts are being manipulated as well. Now, House of Ghosts does have a bigger cast, and I can't really find any corollaries between the cast of House of Ghosts and the cast of The Screaming Skull. There is no wacky groundskeeper stand-in in House of Ghosts. There is no washed-up filmmaker in The Screaming Skull. So the characters aren't quite the same, but some of the images, especially when it comes to the skull or the skeleton, the fact that it's all one central location and things aren't exactly what they seem to be, that's why I recommend that fans of House of Ghosts check out The Screaming Skull. You can find me on my home podcast, Monster Kid Radio, at monsterkidradio.net. We release two episodes a week, every Tuesday and Thursday, and we talk about nothing but these types of movies. The movies that we love so much from this era, from the 30s through the 60s, with occasional toe-dipping outside of that time period for some films that might throw back to this era, like the movies of Christopher Armem. This has been Monster Kid Movies with Monster Kid Radio's Derek M. Cook. Good stuff. Good stuff all around. All righty. So now we come to the fun part. I am going to read you yet another story from Stephen D. Sullivan. Another canoe cop and paddle girl adventure. This one is called The Mummy's Ring. Now, there's a character in here who's meant to have a Egyptian accent. I am not going to do the accents. I'm not. Because I will not do it justice and it will probably just end up sounding terrible. So I'm just going to read it as is in my best uh, Garrison Keeler, And we'll go from there. But I just wanted to get that out there simply so you weren't like, hey, that guy should have an accent. Well, yeah. But I'm not going to do it. I just, I can't. So here we go. This is The Mummy's Ring. A Canoe Cop and Paddle Girl Adventure by Stephen D. Sullivan. You must help me, Officer Agar, the guy pacing my office says in a thick accent. I can't quite figure out where he's from, but I know it's a long way east of Wisconsin. Maybe Brooklyn. I give the visitor my best professional canoe cop look. Exactly what can I do for you, Mr... Uh... Oh, forgive me, the guy says. He's short and squat with dark skin and eyes. He's wearing a natty suit and one of those... What do you call those stovepipe hats without a brim? Oh, oh yeah, Fez. I am Hawass. Dr. Ardoth Hawass. He gives me a little bow, then goes back to pacing. Pleased to meet you, Doc, I say. Not from around here, are you? I have recently sojourned to America from my native land of Egypt, he replies. I was on my way to join the staff of the Minneapolis Museum of Antiquities when I chanced to pass through this benighted hamlet. I grin because my bet about him being from the east of here is dead on. Like I was saying... How can I help you, Dr. Hawass? The drivers I hired to transport my possessions were imbeciles, he tells me, and perhaps drunkards as well. They never should have taken a truck that size over such a narrow causeway. No wonder they ended up driving over the side and into this accursed lake. Now you just hold on a second there, mister, I say. Some pretty weird stuff may happen around Phantom Lake, but we're still an eastern Wisconsin tourist destination. Plenty of people love to come here. Fishing's great, winter or summer. Yes, of course, he says with another little bow. Forgive me, I am merely upset. But these Cretans drove all of my possessions into the lake, and the police tell me they can do nothing about it. They say you, canoe cops, are the only ones who can help me. That's true, I tell him. The police may be the law of the land, but their jurisdiction ends at the shoreline. If it happens on the water, we canoe cops take care of it. 
I hook my thumb at my chest because, you know, I'm proud of the job. Don't know that we could drag a truck out of that part of the lake, though. Water's pretty deep near Gordon's Causeway. I have forsaken any hope of regaining most of my possessions, Hawass explains. But there is one thing I must recover. A fabulous ruby ring. It has been in my family for over a thousand years. Please, Officer Agar, can you help? He looks pretty forlorn at his prospects. I scratch my head because this is a little out of line with what we ordinarily do. But you know us canoe cops. Faithful and true and always game for whatever it takes to get the job done. We'll give it a shot, Dr. Howis, I reply. Can you tell me about where we might find this trinket? It is in a carved wooden jewelry box, contained within a larger shipping crate in the back of the truck, he says. The container was marked fragile. There are only two such crates in the truck. What's the other one, I ask? Your mom's china? For a moment, the guy seems like he doesn't want to answer. Then he says, Merely some ancient artifacts. Nothing to be concerned about. If you could bring me the jewelry box containing the ring, though, I would be most grateful. We'll see what we can do, I say, shaking his hand. How can we reach you? I will be staying at Banning's boarding house for the fortnight. I hope that you will be able to recover my ring before I need to move on to the city. We'll do our best, Doc, I assure him. He bows and leaves, and I get on the phone. Usually in a case that involves some scuba work like this, I'll call on Officer Kelton to dive with me. I'm a good frogman, but only an idiot dives alone in these waters. The undertow can be wicked near Gordon's Causeway, and once you're caught in it, well, nobody's going to see you again. Anyway, normally I'd call on Ed Kelton, but after that scare he had earlier this summer, I'm not sure he's up to it. With him out of the running, there's only one person in Phantom Lake besides me to make that dive. Julie Browning. Her father runs the local dive shop, and I'd trust that girl with my life, even if she wasn't in the Paddle Girl Auxiliary, which she is. So I give Julie a buzz, and because she's a good egg, she agrees to do this treasure hunt dive with me right away. An hour later, the two of us are standing at the edge of Gordon's Causeway, where the truck went over, hooking up our scuba gear. I hadn't seen Julie this summer, and I'd almost forgotten what a dish she is. She looks a lot better in a skin-tight white wetsuit than I do, that's for sure. Ready? I ask, making sure my mouthpiece is clear and my regulator is working properly. You bet, she says, doing the same. We finish checking our gear and then jump into the chilly embrace of Phantom Lake. The water near the shore starts out reasonably clear, but like I told Hawass, it gets fairly deep near the causeway, so the deeper we go, the darker it gets. Pretty soon, Julie and I break out the underwater flares so we can get a better look around. The flares cast a creepy reddish light everywhere, but they get the job done. We'd have a real hard time spotting the truck without them. Spot it we do, though, lying on the lake bed, half on its side. It's one of those canvas-covered jobs, and the back gate is hanging open. A bunch of boxes have spilled out from inside and are lying in the mud amid the lake weeds. Julie and I swim down to the cargo, our flares casting eerie shadows across the truck and all around the lake bottom. The two big boxes Hawass mentioned are easy to find. They're about seven feet long and four feet square on top and bottom. They're sticking up out of the mud like big, crooked tombstones. My dive partner gives me the thumbs up and starts prying open the first crate with her diving knife. I use my knife and do the same on the second box. We set our flares on the lake bottom, sticking them upright so the silt doesn't smother them while we work. I've just about got my crate open when I hear some kind of muffled sound, and all of a sudden, Julie's flare goes out. I turn, and in the flickering light from my flare, I spot Julie struggling with this weird figure. It's hard to make out through the underwater semi-darkness, but the thing looks like a man made of seaweed. Julie's all tangled up in it, and though she's still got her regulator in her mouth, I can hear her strangled cries mingling with the hiss of her tank's air bubbles. My heart's pounding as I swim over to her, as fast as I can. I slash at the thing's weedy arms with my knife, but I'm so rattled that I nearly stab Julie instead. 
Her eyes go wide behind her scuba mask, and I know she's screaming at me too now, because I'm a dope, as well as at the monster. She must have dropped her knife, because it's not in her hands, but she's pounding away at the thing with her fists. I fight down my nerves and slash again, taking better aim this time. With a quick stroke, I cut through the fibrous tendrils once, twice. Then she's free, and both of us are swimming away from the monster as fast as we can. I turn back to see if the thing is following us, but it's just bobbing there in the current. I tap Julie on the leg, and we both stop and take a better look. Sure enough, the thing's just swaying gently in the undertow. When it doesn't come after us, we swim back, slowly, cautiously. I nearly laugh when I see what it is, and though I can't hear her underwater, I think Julie must be laughing, too. She lights another flare and then digs around the muck near the crate. Pretty soon, she finds her knife next to her old flare, which she must have knocked over when she was struggling with the monster. She points at my crate, and the two of us make a quick job of searching it. It doesn't take us long to turn up Hawass's jewelry box. We check to make sure the ring is still inside before ascending back to the surface. I tell you, Julie says as she's pulling off her gear, when I got tangled up in that thing, I thought I was wrestling the monster of Phantom Lake. I chuckle and smile at her. Come on, Jules. You know there's no Phantom Lake monster. But if I were in your position, that's probably what I'd have thought, too. How'd you get so wrapped up with it? I just opened the box and it practically fell on me, she says. I was so startled that I dropped my knife and next thing I knew, good thing I was there to help you. My hero, she says. She flashes me a dazzling smile and I feel like a million bucks. Hey, I say, you think that maybe later we could go out for coffee or something? First things first, tiger shark, she says. Two of us still have a job to do. So we call up Banning's boarding house and quick as a wink, Dr. Hawass meets us back in my office at Canoe Cops HQ. Why don't you tell us that you had a mummy in that other box? I ask him. I did not think it important enough to mention, Hawass replies. Not important, Julie says, incredulous. That thing just about scared us half to death when it fell out of that box and on top of me. Julie got tangled up in the wrappings, I explain. I had to cut her free. How unfortunate, Hawass says. I apologize most deeply for the misunderstanding. The mummy is Rahotep, a minor Egyptian official from the 13th dynasty, not even worth rescuing from the lake bottom. I'm sorry if it gave you such a fright. He bows deeply, just to make his point. Now tell me, did you get the ring? We got it all right, I say, handing the trinket to him. It's a beaut. Heavy gold inscribed with hieroglyphs and set with a ruby the size of my fingernail. We brought up something else as well, Julia adds. This came off from around the mummy's neck during our tussle. She holds out a pendant covered with Egyptian symbols and semi-precious stones. I can't say for certain that it's gold, but it sure looks like it. Hawass bows again. I cannot tell you how delighted I am with your success, he says, grinning like the cat that ate the canary. As a reward, why don't you keep the pendant? I shake my head. All in the day's work, I remind him. Canoe cops can't take rewards for doing their jobs. But Miss Browning is not a cop, Hawass points out. Perhaps she could keep it. Could I, Rich? She asks, her blue eyes all big and irresistible. I scratch my head. Well, there's nothing in the regulations about paddle girls not accepting gifts. It's settled then, Hawass says. He bows once more and heads for the door. I guess you'll be leaving town now that you've found your ring, I call after him. He pauses at the threshold. Perhaps, he says, though it seems a waste not to spend at least a few more days in your charming bucolic community. Then he smiles and steps through the door. Funny little man, Julie says after he's gone. Yeah, I reply, eyeing the jewelry in her hand. Generous, too. Though I've got a funny feeling we haven't seen the last of that guy. Julie drapes her new present around her neck and looks at me with those killer baby blues. Could be, she agrees, but first, I hope we'll have time for that cup of coffee. She holds out her arm, expecting me to take it. I loop my elbow around hers and grin. 
Personally, I'm hoping we'll have time for a lot more than coffee. The End That was The Mummy's Ring, A Canoe Cop and Paddle Girl Adventure by Stephen D. Sullivan. That felt like a little bit of a setup. Like maybe something's going to happen. Contact Mr. Sullivan through his website, through Facebook. Let him know that you like this and you want more. And he said that he could probably do it. But we gotta, we got to encourage him. Let's encourage him, shall we? Thank you very much for listening to the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am Christopher R. Mim, the writer and director of the films of the Mimiverse. Stay tuned for Danny Johnson Saves the World, coming soon to you this May. I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, there are nine other films in the Mimiverse series. So please check them out at my website, www.sainteuphoria.com. S-A-I-N-T-E-U-P-H-O-R-I-A.com. If that is too hard to spell or remember, just go to thegiantspider.com. It'll take you to my website. From there, click on merchandise. You'll see all the good stuff we have. And we have a special deal right now that I'm extending beyond the holidays. And that is three DVDs for 25 bucks. That's a great deal. Plus, contribute to Danny Johnson Saves the World while you still can. You're running out of time. You don't want to be left out. Do it. You can do it. You will love it. In the meantime, I am Christopher Armim saying thank you very much for listening. Good day, good evening, good night, whatever time it is you're listening to this. Have a good one, and I will talk to you next month, my friends. Take it away, Dr. Bob. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. And it is time for your MIM Audiocast Joke of the Month. What is the difference between zoos in the north and zoos in the south? The zoos in the north, they have a little description of each animal in front of the cage, but the zoos in the south have that description, but they also have a recipe for each animal. Make sure you come out January 10th for Kingdom of Metal here at the Gateway Film Center. <laughs>